0: Hello!
1: Oh, hello. Welcome back to the public access read-along Jane Eyre with me, Isabeau. And me, Morgan.
0: When we aren't talking about a romance novel, we're talking about a romance (laughs) novel (laughs) with our chapter by chapter read-along of Jane Eyre, which is in the, what is it called?
1: Public domain.
0: It's in the public domain. So any legal eagles out there... Go ahead and close your laptop. Stop writing that
1: affidavit. Yeah, you know who else is in the clear officially this year for the first time? The Great Gatsby! (gasps) The Great Gatsby!
0: Which allowed someone to publish a book from the perspective of Nick. And it was like, uh, great. What we've all been waiting for.
1: I just want my (laughs) full-length Muppet adaptation where Kermit plays Gatsby and Miss Piggy (laughs) plays Daisy
0: holy shit why doesn't that exist
1: uh because it wasn't in the public domain until january 1
0: i want to live in a world where that muppet movie is already in the can and they just need to release it now who's nick is it gonzo is gonzo nick oh that could be or no obviously who's the little kermit his nephew
1: oh my god robin
0: robin
1: could very well be nick
0: Could very well be Nick. Who are the other characters? Who's the lady who gets vehicular homicided?
1: Oh, what is her name? And who would Miss Piggy's slash Daisies, who would be her bad husband? Who's a bad Muppet? That would be a person. That would be the person. Yeah, that would be the
0: person. They always have a human villain. They do. That makes sense. They would bring Tim Curry back,
1: probably. Oh, God. He would be terrifying as that.
0: I rewatched Muppets Treasure Island recently, and it was at once as good as I remembered and not as good and so much weirder. I love the man who lives in Fozzie's Finger. That's so bizarre.
1: It is absurd. Like... It is an absurd take on Treasure Island, and it is absurd as a Muppet film. I also recently watched it during the lockdown, and Tim Curry is obviously a fucking vision. But the thing that really struck me was the song about Cabin Fever, and I was like, oh God.
0: (laughs) Yeah i got cabin fever. I also love the underlying story of Rizzo the Rat has sold this as a luxury cruise for rats. And they're all having a great time and having this like cruise line all-inclusive buffet experience. But once again, like I can talk about each of these pieces and it sounds riveting. But then when I actually watched it, I was just like, maybe I was too stoned. I don't do drugs, but maybe I was too stoned. Yeah, like
1: that's one that requires just the right amount of altered reality for it to be fully pleasurable all the time because like kids have an altered state of reality it's like you have to return to that space
0: but if you go too far one direction like if you become too visually clued in you see the strings (laughs) the little nudges of human fingers inside the bodies of these furry creatures you know what i mean it's (laughs) kind of like you see the painted backgrounds yeah And this is relevant because we oftentimes see the human fingers of our very own Charlotte Bronte within Jane.
1: We do. That persona. (laughs) And now the whole
0: Muppet conversation
1: stays in the show. It's great. Sometimes Charlotte is the puppet master and sometimes she's the puppet. Yep. It's just like Jim Henson. It's
0: true. And the puppet master is that school teacher she was in love with.
1: It's just like Jim Henson and Kermit. It's like sometimes we don't know where the frog ends (laughs) and where the man begins. I
0: love it idea that Kermit the Frog is puppeteering like another Kermit the Frog while also being secretly in love with (laughs) Jem Henson to the point where Jem Henson is the sole and like that's what creates the puppet master dynamic between the two of them seems right. So yeah, we're doing a chapter by chapter read along of Jane Eyre and we took a break because we completed part 1 in isabeau's book. My book doesn't give a shit about parts. My book says, "Let's go all the way through." Um so in my book, we are on chapter 16. And the last time you heard from us, I read you out loud chapter 15, wherein Jane learns about Rochester's past with his ward's mother turns out, guess what, guys? Rochester's the villain. I mean, the victim.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In his own mind, (laughs) he's the victim. In the story, he's clearly the villain.
0: (laughs) He's the victim, yeah. And Jane goes to sleep thinking about what a swell fella he is. And she starts to hear creepy goblin giggles. And it disturbs her from her sleep when she then smells smoke. And looks out her door, sees it's coming from Rochester's bedroom, runs in, douses him with water to put out the fire, and saves his life. And Rochester tells her not to give anyone else involved. He's like, I just have to go upstairs. You stay here. And then when he comes back down, she's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go to bed now. And he won't let go of her hand, her one small hand, with his two burly mitts. I would like to remind everyone, Rochester is not classically handsome, nor is he legally tall. He's just got some big
1: hands. He fills up a room with his presence.
0: With his presence. I think we've all known one of those guys. All right, so now we are excited to kick off part two with chapter 16, and I get the pleasure of listening to the sultry, dulcet, Greek Orthodox tones of Isabel. Calgon, take me away.
1: Volume Two, Chapter One, AKA Chapter Sixteen. I both wished and feared to see Mr. Rochester on the day which followed this sleepless night. I wanted to hear his voice again, yet feared to meet his eye. During the early part of the morning, I momentarily expected his coming. He was not in the frequent habit of entering the schoolroom, but he did step in for a few minutes sometimes, and I had the impression that he was sure to visit it that day. But the morning passed as usual. Nothing happened to interrupt the quiet course of Adele's studies. Only, soon after breakfast, I heard some bustle in the neighborhood of Mr. Rochester's chamber, Mrs. Fairfax's voice, and Leah's, and the cook's, that is, John's wife, and even John's own gruff tones. There were exclamations of, what a mercy, master, was not burnt in his bed! It is always dangerous to keep a candle lit at night. How providential that he had the presence of mind to think of the water jug! I wonder he waked nobody! It is to be hoped he will not take cold with sleeping on the library sofa, etc. So much confabulation succeeded a sound of scrubbing and setting to rights, and when I passed the room and going downstairs to dinner, I saw through the open door that all was again restored to complete order. Only the bed was stripped of its hangings. Leah stood up in the window seat, rubbing the panes of glass dimmed with smoke. I was about to address her, for I wished to know what account had been given of the affair, but, on advancing, I saw a second person in the chamber, a woman sitting on a chair by the bedside, and sewing rings to new curtains. That woman was no other than Grace Poole. There she sat, staid and taciturn-looking, as usual, in her brown stuff gown her check apron, white handkerchief, and cap. She was intent on her work, in which her whole thought seemed absorbed. On her hard forehead and her commonplace features was nothing either of the paleness or desperation one would have expected to see marking the countenance of a woman who had attempted murder and whose intended victim had followed her last night to her lair and, as I believed, charged her with a crime she wished to perpetrate. I was amazed, confounded. She looked up While I still gazed at her, no start, no increase or failure of color, betrayed emotion, consciousness of guilt or fear of detection. She said, good morning, miss, in her usual phlegmatic and brief manner, and taking up another ring and more tape, went on with her sewing. I'll put her to some test, thought I. Such absolute impenetrability is past comprehension. Good morning, Grace. Do you
0: think Jane is 100% sure that it was Grace Poole who set the fire? in this moment
1: yes in this moment and i think like last night she wasn't but in the cold light of day like this is one of those things where it's like jane is not encouraged to trust her instincts in another way she might be being gaslit by the house and by a person
0: i learned something really interesting about gaslighting from a 90 day fiance youtube channel psychology in seattle and he is a family therapist who analyzes (laughs) scenes. And a lot of people accuse this uh, one guy who was from, I don't know, Western Europe somewhere, and he was with this woman named Darcy who's now like a key character of the 90 Day Fiancé cinematic universe. And he was like, I see a lot of people on Twitter saying that he's gaslighting her, and I understand that we now have this common parlance of gaslighting. And he was like, but I want to point out that like if we're talking about it in like a clinical sense, it's actually very tightly hewed to the actual plot of the film Gaslight, which is that you are intentionally tricking someone into thinking that they're crazy so as you can like achieve gains and he's like gaslighting is something that we would see with like sociopathic or psychopathic personalities who kind of just like don't really connect with people and just see them as a means to an end right he was like what is often happening is that a narcissist has to believe that they are in the right all the time. And he was like, and not even just a narcissist, right? We all have like a defense mechanism where it's really difficult for us to ever believe that we're in the wrong or that we've done something wrong or that we've been a selfish person or that we have unearned privileges that are causing us to like cudgel people, right? And so a lot of times now, gaslighting gets attributed to this unintentional, like the person is also gaslighting themselves then, you know, as much as they're gaslighting the other
1: person. But I think in this instance, Mr. Oh, he's doing it on purpose. Yeah. (laughs) I think in this exact moment, like it is, it has worked. Like the light of day, the banishing of the shadows, the absence of Mr. Rochester is forcing Jane to like clinically look at this. And she believes that Grace Poole is the perpetrator of a near murder.
0: Did Mr. Rochester tell her that Grace Poole was the one who does that laughter? Or no, it was uh, the housekeeper who told her that.
1: Mm hmm. It was the housekeeper. It's not just Mr. Rochester who's doing it, but like Jane volunteered Grace Poole as the answer last chapter. And he's like, yes, of course it was Grace.
0: Yes. And he just kind of like let it go. He was like, what did you see? And she was like,
1: Grace Poole.
0: I think it's that drunk giggler.
1: Uh Uh-huh, that is.
0: Grace Poole. And he's like, "Uh uh-huh. Correct. Interesting. Okay. I've got to go upstairs.
1: To talk to Grace Pool. The woman you saw? Yep.
0: Grace Pool? Her name's Pool, right? Right. Grace Pool.
1: Right. It starts with a P. Gonna go up there and check that. Uh, <laughs> yep. Good morning, Grace, I said. Has anything happened here? I thought I heard the servants all talking together a while ago. Only master had been reading in his bed last night. He fell asleep with his candle lit, and the curtains caught fire. But fortunately, he awoke before the bedclothes or the woodwork caught and contrived to quench the flame with the water in the ewer a strange affair i said in a low voice then looking at her fixedly did mr rochester wake nobody did no one hear him move She again raised her eyes to me, and this time there was something of consciousness in their expression. She seemed to examine me warily. Then she answered, the servants sleep so far off, you know, miss. They would not be likely to hear. Mrs. Fairfax's room and yours are the nearest to the master's, but Mrs. Fairfax said she heard nothing. When people get elderly, they often sleep heavy. She paused. And then added with a sort of amused indifference, but still a marked and significant tone. But you are young, miss, and I should say a light sleeper. Perhaps you may have heard a noise.
0: My book says assumed indifference.
1: Weird. What are our... (laughs) (laughs) That's a huge
0: change. Grace, her amused indifference versus assumed indifference—I think it's too significant of a difference.
1: I did, said I, dropping my voice so that Leah, who was still polishing the pans, could not hear me. And at first, I thought it was Pilot, but Pilot cannot laugh, and I am.
0: (laughs) She's a real Hercule Poirot. I am
1: certain. I heard a laugh and a strange one. She took a new needle full of thread, waxed it carefully, threaded her needle with a steady hand, and then observed with perfect composure. It is hardly likely Master would laugh, I should think, miss, when he was in such danger. You must have been dreaming. I was not dreaming, I said with some warmth, for her brazen coolness provoked me. Again, she looked at me, and with the same scrutinizing and conscious eye, "'Have you told the master that you heard a laugh?' she inquired. "'I have not had the opportunity of speaking to him this morning.' You did not think of opening your door and looking out into the gallery, she further asked. She appeared to be cross-questioning me, attempting to draw from me information unawares. The idea struck me that if she discovered I knew or suspected her guilt, she would be playing off some of her malignant pranks on me. I thought it advisable to be on my guard. On the contrary, said I, I bolted my door. Then you are not in the habit of bolting your door every night before you get into bed. Fiend. She wants to know my habits, that she may lay her plans accordingly." Indignation again prevailed over prudence. I replied sharply, Hitherto I have often omitted to fasten the bolt. I did not think it necessary. I was not aware any danger or annoyance was to be dreaded at Thornfield Hall. But in future, and I laid marked stress on the words, I shall take good care to make all secure before I venture to lie down. It will be wise so to do, was her answer. This neighborhood is as quiet as any I know, and I never heard of the hall being attempted by robbers since it was a house, though there are hundreds of pounds worth of plate in the plate closet, as is well known. And you see, for such a large house, there are very few servants, because Master has never lived here much, and when he does come, being a bachelor, he needs little waiting on. I always think it best to err on the safe side door is soon fastened and it is as well to have a drawn bolt between one and any mischief that may be about a deal of people miss are for trusting all to providence but i say providence will not dispense with the means though he often blesses them when they are used discreetly and here she closed her harangue a long one for her and uttered with the demureness of a Quakeress. I still stood absolutely dumbfounded at what appeared to me her miraculous self possession and most inscrutable hypocrisy when the cook entered. Mrs. Poole, said she, addressing Grace, the servants' dinner will soon be ready. Will you come down? No, just put my pint of porter and bit of pudding on a tray and I'll carry it upstairs. You'll have some meat, just a morsel, and a taste of cheese, that's all. And the sago? Never mind it. At present, I shall be coming down before tea time. I'll make it myself. The cook here turned to me, saying that Miss Fairfax was waiting for me, so I departed. I hardly heard Mrs. Fairfax's account of the curtain conflagration during dinner, so much was I occupied in puzzling my brains over the enigmatical character of Grace Poole, and still more in pondering the problem of her position at Thornfield, in questioning why she had not been given into custody that morning, or at the very least dismissed from her master's service. He had almost as much as declared his conviction of her criminality last night. What mysterious cause withheld him from accusing her? Why had he enjoined me 2. To secrecy. It was strange. A bold, vindictive, and haughty gentleman seemed somehow in the power of one of the meanest of his dependents. So much in her power that even when she lifted her hand against his life, he dared not openly charge her with the attempt, much less punish her for it. Had Grace been young and handsome, I should have tempted to think that tenderer feelings than prudence or fear influenced Mr. Rochester in her behalf. But hard-favored and matronly as she was, the idea could not be admitted. Yet, I reflected, she has been young once. Her youth would be contemporary with her masters. Mrs. Fairfax told me once, she had lived here many years, I don't think she can ever have been pretty, but for aught I know, she may possess originality and strength of character to compensate for want of personal advantages. Mr. Rochester is an amateur of the decided and eccentric. Grace is eccentric, at least. What if a former caprice, a freak, very possible to nature so sudden and headstrong as his, has delivered him into her power, and she now exercises over his actions a secret influence, the result of his own indiscretion, which he cannot shake off and dare not disregard? But having reached this point of conjecture, Mrs. Poole's square, flat figure and uncommonly dry, even coarse face reoccurred so distinctly to my mind's eye that I thought, No impossible my supposition cannot be correct yet suggested the secret voice which talks to us in our own hearts you are not beautiful either and perhaps mr rochester approves you at any rate you have often felt as if he did and last night remember his words Remember his look, remember his voice. I well remembered all language, glance, and tone seemed at the moment vividly renewed. It was now in the schoolroom. Adele was drawing. I bent over her and directed her pencil. She looked up with a sort of start. "Que mademoiselle?" said she. "Vos <laughs> doigts tremblants comme les filles et vous joues sans rouge, mais rouge comme des cerises." I'm hot, Adele, was stooping. She went on sketching, (laughs) I went on thinking. I hastened to drive from my mind the hateful notion I had been conceiving respecting Grace Poole. It disgusted me. I compared myself with her and found we were different. Bessie Levin had said I was quite a lady, and she spoke truth. I was a lady, and now I looked much better than I did when Bessie saw me. I had more color and more flesh, more life, more vivacity, because I had brighter hopes and keener enjoyments. Evening approaches, said I, as I looked towards the window. I have never heard Mr. Rochester's voice or step in house today, but surely I shall see him before night. I feared the meeting in the morning. Now I desired it, because expectation has been so long baffled that it is grown impatient. When dust actually closed, and when Adele left me to go and play in the nursery with Sophie, I did most keenly desire it. I listened for the bell to ring below. I listened for Leah coming up with a message. I fancied sometimes I heard Mr. Rochester's own tread, and I turned to the door, expecting it to open and admit him. The door remained shut. Darkness only came in through the window. Still, it was not late. He often sent for me at seven and eight o'clock, and it was yet but six. Surely I should not be wholly disappointed tonight when I had so many things to say to him. I wanted again to introduce the subject of Grace Poole, and to hear what he would answer. I wanted to ask him plainly if he really believed it was she who made last night's hideous attempt, and if so, why he kept her wickedness a secret. It little mattered whether my curiosity irritated him. I knew the pleasure of vexing and soothing him by turns. It was one I chiefly delighted in, and a sure instinct always prevented me from getting too far beyond the verge of provocation I never ventured, on the extreme brink I liked well to try my skill. Retaining every minute form of respect, every propriety of my station, I could still meet him in argument without fear or uneasy restraint. This suited both him and me. A tread creaked on the stairs at last. Leah made her appearance, but it was only to intimate that tea was ready in Miss Fairfax's room. Thither I repaired, glad at least to go downstairs, for that brought me, I imagined, nearer to Mr. Rochester's presence. You must want your tea, said the good lady as I joined her. You ate so little at dinner. I am afraid, she continued, you are not well today. You look flushed and feverish. Oh, quite well. <laughs> I never felt better. And you must prove it by inventing a good appetite. Will you fill the teapot while I knit? off this needle having completed her task she rose to draw down the blind which had hitherto kept up by way i suppose of making the most of daylight the dusk was now fast deepening into total obscurity it's fair tonight said she as she looked through the panes though not starlight mr rochester has on the whole had a favorable day for his journey journey is Mr. Rochester gone anywhere? I did not know he was out. Oh, he set off the moment he had breakfasted. He has gone to the Lees, Mr. Eshton's place, 10 miles on the other side of Millcut. I believe there's quite a party assembled there. Lord Ingram, Sir George Lynn, Colonel Dent, and others. Do you expect him back tonight? No, nor tomorrow either, I should think. He is very likely to stay a week or more when these fine, fashionable people get together. They are so surrounded by elegance and gaiety, so well provided with all that can please and entertain. They are in no hurry to separate. Gentlemen especially are often in request on such occasions, and Mr. Rochester is so talented and so lively in society that I believe he is a general favorite. The ladies are very fond of him, though you would not think his appearance calculated to recommend him particularly in their eyes, but I suppose his acquirements and abilities, perhaps his wealth and good blood make amends for any little fault of look. Are there ladies at the least? there are mrs eshton and her three daughters very elegant young ladies indeed and there are the honorable blanche and mary ingram most beautiful women i suppose indeed i have seen blanche six or seven years since when she was a girl of 18 she came here to a christmas ball and party mr rochester gave you should have seen the dining room that day how richly it was decorated how brilliantly lit up i should think there were 50 ladies and gentlemen present all of the first country families and miss ingram was considered the bell of the evening. You saw her, you say, Mrs. Fairfax. What was she like? Yes, I saw her. The dining room doors were thrown open, and as it was Christmas time, the servants were allowed to assemble in the hall to hear some of the ladies sing and play. Mr. Rochester would have me to come in, and I sat down in a quiet corner and watched them. I never saw a more splendid scene. The ladies were magnificently dressed. At least most of the younger ones looked handsome. But Miss Ingram was certainly the queen. And what was she like? Tall, fine bust, sloping shoulders, long, graceful neck. Is she a swan?! Olive complexion, dark and clear, noble features, eyes rather like Mr. Rochester's, large and black and as brilliant as her jewels. And then she had such a fine head of hair, raven black and so becomingly arranged, a crown of thick plates behind and in front the longest, the glossiest curls I ever saw. She was dressed in pure white. An amber-colored scarf was passed over her shoulder and across her breast, tied at the side and descending in long, fringe ends below her knee. She wore an amber-colored flower, too, and her hair contrasted well with the jetty mass of her curls. Wow, this is a lot of hair talk. This is, like, hair envy here.
0: There's a lot. Also, it's like, she's, like, borderline obsessed with this person. (laughs) Yeah, she's deep in with Miss Ingram. can't remember the last time I could describe someone else's outfit in that grade of detail, let alone their hair. Yeah. I mean, I know it's for, like, narrative purposes,
1: but I'm still like, that's a lot. (laughs) a lot of detail. She was greatly admired, of course. Yes, indeed. And not only for her beauty, but for her accomplishments. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. They're never just beautiful, are they? She was one of the ladies who sang. A gentleman accompanied her on piano. She and Mr. Rochester sang a duet. Mr. Rochester, I was not aware he could sing. Oh, he has a fine bass voice and an excellent taste for music.
0: Emma threw a mirror darkly.
1: And Miss Ingram, uh, what sort of voice had she? A very rich and powerful one. She sang delightfully. It was a treat to listen to her, and she played afterwards. I am no judge of music, but Mr. Rochester is, and I heard him say her execution was remarkably good. And this beautiful and accomplished lady is not yet married it appears not i fancy neither she nor her sister have very large fortunes or lord ingram's estates were chiefly entailed and the eldest son came in for everything almost but i wonder no wealthy nobleman or gentleman has taken a fancy to her mr rochester for instance he is rich is he not oh yes but you see there is a considerable difference in age mr rochester is near 40 she is but 25 what if that more unequal matches are made every day. True, yet I should scarcely fancy Mr. Rochester would entertain any idea of the sort. But you eat nothing. You have scarcely tasted since you began tea. No, I am too thirsty to eat. Will you let me have another cup? I was about again to revert to the probability of a union between Mr. Rochester and the beautiful Blanche, but Adele came in and the conversation was turned into another channel. When once more alone, I reviewed the information I had got, looked into my heart, examined its thoughts and feelings, and endeavored to bring back with a strict hand such as had been straying through imagination's boundless and trackless waste into the safe fold of common sense arraigned at my own bar memory having given her evidence of the hopes wishes sentiments i had been cherishing since last night of the general state of mind in which i had indulged for nearly a fortnight past reason having come forward and told in her own quiet way a plain unvarnished tale showing how i had rejected the real and rabidly devoured the ideal i pronounced judgment to this effect That a greater fool than Jane Eyre had never breathed the breath of life. That a more fantastic idiot had never surfeited herself on sweet lies and swallowed poison as if it were nectar. You, I said. A favorite with Mr. Rochester? You gifted with the power of pleasing him? You of importance to him in any way? Go! Your folly sickens me! You've derived pleasure from occasional tokens of preference, equivocal tokens shown by a gentleman of family and a man of the world to a dependent and a novice. How dare you... Poor stupid dupe. Could not even self-interest make you wiser? You repeated to yourself this morning the brief scene of last night, cover your face and be ashamed he said something in praise of your eyes did he? Blind puppy open their bleared lids and look on your own accursed senselessness it does good to no woman to be flattered by her superior who cannot possibly intend to marry her and it it is madness in all women to let a secret love kindle within them which if unreturned and unknown must devour the life that feeds it and if discovered and responded to must lead Ignis Foutis like into miry wilds whence there is no extrication. Listen, then, Jane Eyre, to your sentence. Tomorrow, place the glass before you and draw in chalk your own picture faithfully without softening one defect. Omit no harsh line. Smooth away no displeasing irregularity. Write under it portrait of a governess disconnected poor and plain. Afterwards, take a piece of smooth ivory. You have one prepared in your drawing box. Take your palette. Mix your freshest, finest, clearest tints. Choose your most delicate camel hair pencils. Delineate carefully the loveliest face you can imagine. Paint it in your softest shades and sweetest hues. According to the description given by Miss Fairfax of Blanche Ingram. Remember the raven ringlets. The oriental eye. What? You revert to Mr. Rochester as a model? Order! No snivel! No sentiment! No regret! I will endure only sense and resolution. Recall the august yet harmonious lineaments, the Grecian neck and bust. Let the round and dazzling arm be visible, and the delicate hand. Omit neither diamond ring nor gold bracelet. Portray faithfully the attire, aerial lace, glistening satin, graceful scarf, and golden rose. Call it Blanche, an accomplished lady of rank." Whenever, in future, you should chance to fancy Mr. Rochester thinks well of you, take out these two pictures and compare them. Say, Mr. Rochester might probably win the noble lady's love if he choose to strive for it. It is likely he would waste a serious thought on this indignant and insignificant plebeian. I'll do it, I resolved, and having framed this determination, (laughs) I grew calm and fell asleep. I kept my word. An hour or two sufficed to sketch my own portrait in crayons, and less than a fortnight, I had completed an ivory miniature of an imaginary Blanche Ingram. It looked a lovely face enough, and when compared with the real head in chalk, contrast was as great as self-control could desire. I derived benefit from the task. It had kept my head and hands employed, and had given force and fixedness to the new impressions I wished to stamp indelibly on my heart. Ere long, I had reason to congratulate myself on the course of the wholesome discipline to which I had thus forced my feelings to submit. Thanks to it, I was able to meet subsequent occurrences with a decent calm, which, had they found me unprepared, I should probably have been unequal to maintain, even externally.
0: It's the end of the chapter.
1: Holy G. Uh Woof
0: it's so real though that like feeling of adrenaline when you think someone likes you and you like them and you just don't eat it really is like a literal surge of adrenaline like you work out really hard and you don't eat and you stay up all night and uh yeah and then the come down which I totally relate to you know It's easy to look at other people on Instagram, and uh, it's easy to read our bad reviews on Apple Podcasts. Please give us a five-star written review if you haven't yet. And, you know, if you want to give us a bad review, we do read them.
1: (laughs) We do read them. (laughs) And then we look at the good reviews of other podcasts, and we say, look at you! Draw yourself in crayons! Draw the better one on an (laughs) ivory! Make a miniature of how beautiful! (laughs) You are in chalk! They are on
0: ivory (laughs) with your sweetest colors, (laughs) (laughs) with your sweetest color. And then the way she sleeps peacefully, also super relatable. There is something about like self-deprivation and self-harm that can make you feel like you've restored equilibrium, right? That's
1: exactly what this scene is.
0: Because everything tells you that that is the equilibrium,
1: even if it's not true. Yeah. And even the little marker that she puts under it, you know, plain governess. What does she say? It's so harsh. It's just... Portrait of a governess, disconnected poor and plain, and then Blanche, an accomplished lady of rank.
0: Yeah. And just to, like, speak it out loud... You know, or to articulate it at all, your worst fears, there is something of like an absolution, but I, you know, there's not an er erasing of it.
1: I think it's interesting that you use the word absolution um, because this also sort of feels like religious in its fervence,
0: Mm, mm -hmm.
1: physical things that people do to get closer to God. Yeah. It's, she's so harsh with herself.
0: Which isn't just like whipping yourself with a cat of nine tails, like the process of kneeling and unkneeling is actually meant and is physically exhausting. Yeah. Or, you know, dancing around, jumping constantly, putting your hands above your head.
1: Yeah. Or even just standing through an hour and a half long mass or Lent and like deprivation. Like there is something in here about like getting back to like a sort of core knowledge of self and like whether or not that core knowledge of self is good or true. Like this is a pillar of Jane's experience of self.
0: It's interesting that we're calling on so much about, like, corporeal experience because it's really a cerebrally described chapter, right? It's, like, all of this is happening in internal dialogue and it doesn't talk about, like, feeling, right? Like, we don't hear about feeling, we just see this, like, shared conversation, which I'm almost like, Fairfax, are you doing this on purpose,
1: Totally. Like, how can you not see the agony that Jane is in?
0: (laughs) I think she is. I think Miss Fairfax is maybe seeing like a little glitter and is trying to put uh, Miss Eyre back in her place as she sees it because it's so over the top, you know?
1: And maybe she thinks she's, like, doing it for her own protection. Like, I can definitely see Mrs. Fairfax being, like, the old lady housekeeper, knowing how charismatic Mr. Rochester is. Just like Jane's aunt
0: did, right? I mean to you for your own good.
1: Yeah, I think that is, like, this is a softer version of the Red Room. Like, I am going to describe her raven hair and her ringlets and her white bust and her Grecian neck. Like, the detail is excruciating.
0: Even without, like, specific description of feeling or, or, like, exhaustion, right? You and I, I think, experienced it in a very physical way, just reading it. Like, I felt my chest collapsing in all the time and, like, my shoulders rolling forward as you were going through it, just because I was like, this is too much. An objective part of my brain was like, this is too much. And then I was like, but it's everything. Everything is too much. This is exactly what it's like.
1: So, you know, I guess we haven't come that far self-esteem-wise at all. I think that's what's so insane about this chapter. It feels so modern, like, especially at, like, 17 or 18. And, like, Jane's, like, literally 18 or 19. Like, I remember this feeling distinctly.
0: I remember this feeling, like, two years ago. Yeah, like, this guy doesn't like me.
1: Like, well, why would he? There's no reason that he should. (laughs)
0: Jesus! Of course not. Woof. Woof. And like you, and it's not just like in the romantic sense either. It's truly like in all. So you know, the feelings of inadequacy can come from
1: yeah, like a job interview that you thought you'd done really well on, and you get that phone call where it's like we've decided to go in another direction. And it's like, well, fucking, of course you did.
0: It's also important to note that, like, all of this bad feeling comes to Jane and it has nothing to do with anything Rochester has said or done, besides leaving without saying anything, which is very shitty, right? But I think, like, he's kind of a prick, right? But, like, he hasn't done anything to make her feel bad about herself, right? Or to think that she's less than. Like, all of this is coming from her own conversation from a third party relating the existence of a fourth party, and that's enough to, like crush her to pluck her from the wings of the eagle that she was soaring on
1: yeah and like what was so interesting about this as you say like she was soaring on the wings of the eagle but like those wings were already sort of like coming undone because of the earlier thing that she'd done with grace Poole, where she's like well maybe grace and mr rochester had some sort of like amorous attachment and he's still like beholden to her but she's like grace sucks and it is ugly and like and then she's like oh wait I am friendless and I'm plain.
0: I suck. I'm ugly. Right?
1: <laughs> and so like the idea that we like moved from like Grace Poole is a murderer or an attempted murderer and Mr. Rochester hasn't dismissed her. Why hasn't he dismissed her? Oh, maybe they like had some sort of a more. Why would they? She sucks. Oh shit. I think he might like me and I definitely like him. Do I suck? And then this whole Miss Ingram thing, it's like, holy shit, this internality of this chapter is just, like, too real. But that's,
0: like, the other thing about being on that, like, adrenaline rush of having, like, a crush on someone and, like, when it really kicks into high gear, right, is that you become so, like, singularly focused. Or also, like, maybe this is a diagnosable thing that I have, where, like, you get really excited about, like, a project or something, right? And suddenly everything is the project or everything is the person. And everything has to do with, like, how to achieve that mutual affection, you know? And so everything can kind of be interpreted or triangulated against your desires. And then like 48 hours later, the crash comes.
1: Yeah, it's the lens in which you narrativize everything. It's the lens that you see things through. That's why they call it the first blush of love. It's a color. It's a sensorial experience that narrativizes and colors everything else. I think you're exactly right to say that you triangulate everything through this like thing. That's what Jane's doing.
0: All right. Well, any other thoughts about chapter 16, Sweet sixteen? Not so sweet 16... Oh, I did want to point out that one of the terms is just another word for will of the wisps Ignis fatuus, like in the misty wilds, whence there is no extrication. So the will-o'-the-wisps, if you don't know, my book describes it as an illusory light in the marshes, used figuratively for delusive hopes, also called will of the wisp Because I think it gets back to that ethereal fairy, you know, and she's now starting to understand him in the same kind of... Supernatural. Supernatural, whimsical, but also like light, you know not so much a demon not a guy trash he is guy trash not a guy trash he is guy trash
1: all right anything any final f- thoughts from you isabeau no i just loved and hated this chapter i felt like too seen
0: gosh yeah what a uh, a sight for can't even think of the word for it but you know that thing when you feel bad and then you just make yourself feel worse And then you feel better because you like listen to a sad song or something. I call it diving down
1: to the bottom of feeling.
0: There's like an actual word for it. Catharsis?
1: Catharsis! Jesus! Yes! Catharsis! It was very cathartic. It is. It is a catharsis.
0: Did I totally misrepresent the word catharsis?
1: Yeah, a catharsis just means an emotional break. It can be positive or negative. Um, So like diving down to the end of feeling to find the catharsis. Yeah, this is totally cathartic. And she has a cathartic experience after like self-flagellating.
0: No, it's catharsis. This is catharsis. (laughs) Well, I had a cathartic experience reading her self-flagellating. Me too.
1: It was very cathartic.
0: It's very cathartic. It's like whenever you force it, though. Like you watch the funeral scene in Steel Magnolias, right?
1: It's so funny that you mentioned that because I, I thought of that scene and I also thought of this thing that I used to do as a teenager where, because I had a VHS of, and I had the VHS tapes of Titanic and I'd come home from a hard day of middle school and I would only watch the second tape, which started with Cal slapping Rose. And I was just like, that's what I'm going to do this afternoon. just like
0: The second tape of Steel Magnolias but that's catharsis. Every time I turn to something like that, I always picture like, (laughs) this is so bad, but whenever they like really need to gather bull semen and they just like put a probe in its (laughs) rectum and it just makes it, you can do that, right? With bad feeling and then you, and then it's over. So basically this chapter of Jane Eyre was a-
1: Anal probe.
0: An electric probe that ignited my tears. Uh, my adolescent anxiety tears. <laughs> cool. <laughs> catharsis. <laughs> and that's the working, the definition, wo- of
1: working definition of catharsis.
0: low working definition of catharsis. Oh my gosh. This is Would that loosen your
1: jeans. But never your heirs.
0: <laughs> Keep them tight.